Well, good morning again. Uh, it's great to be with you. Uh, this morning, uh, the passage that we're going to be looking at comes out of Psalm 111. Psalm 111. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, it's also printed in your order of service, Psalm 111. This summer, we're looking at various psalms, uh, hopping around a little bit, looking at different genres, different, uh, different lengths of psalms. And this morning, this psalm, uh, we don't know the author of it. Uh, David authored many of the psalms, but, but we're not sure who the author of this particular psalm is. But, but this is the first of what uh, commentators or theologians call Hallel psalms. So Hallel is simply the Hebrew word that means to praise. Um, and we're going to see in a second why uh, this would have that sort of designation. There's a handful of them that begins with Psalm 111, and it continues for the subsequent psalms that follow for a few of them. These Hallel psalms, this is also an acrostic. And so that means that in the Hebrew, each Hebrew line of this psalm begins with a successive Hebrew letter, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, and so on. It goes all the way down the line until we get through all of the Hebrew letters. It's an acrostic. We don't pick that up as much in our English translations, but it is there nonetheless. It's a psalm that speaks of praise, a psalm that speaks of worship, a psalm that's inviting us to, be, to have our hearts overflow with praise and honor and glory of our God, the one who has created us, the one who has saved us. And so let's go ahead and read Psalm 111. The psalmist writes, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our God and our King, we do thank you that as we come to your word, that you meet with us and you lead us that you direct us in the way that we are to go. And so we ask that this morning that you would minister to our hearts and that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts to be pleasing to you. For God, we are in need of you. We need your grace and your mercy, and we ask for it now. In Christ's name, amen. So I'd like to begin this morning by asking a question. It's going to take a little bit of reflection on your part. I want to ask you, what are your default settings? What are your default settings? That might seem like an odd question because we generally don't think about the human heart as having default settings. We think of computers and televisions and phones as having default settings, right? You get the new iPhone and it comes out of the box and it's got a particular way in which it's going to function, right? The default setting is the, the base, right? It's the standard for which things are supposed to function. We know this is true with e electronics. DVD players, TVs, computers, phones, cars, right? Uh, they all have default settings, but, but so too does the human heart. 
the human soul, we have a default setting. We have a, a way in which we function, the way in which we act that we don't even have to really think about. We, we don't think twice about it. We just kind of do these things, right? We come across uh, experiences that we've had before, and we don't have to think about all the different options that are before us. We just simply know how to act. We know how to speak. We know what to do. We don't have to think about it, right? For instance, like when you, when you hold a newborn baby, maybe an, an infant that's a day or two old, you, you take her in your arms and you look in her face, like you just can't help but smile, right? Like no one told you you should smile at this beautiful baby. It's not smiling back at you. In fact, it's a miracle if its eyes are even open, right? If it's looking at you and yet you can't help but smile. That's the default setting of your heart. Or maybe, maybe another default setting is, is uh, the, the instinctual yum that we say when we take a bite of a perfectly grilled piece of steak or a moist piece of cake, right? We just can't help but say, mmm, right? No one told you to do that. You just do it. It just kind of erupts out of your soul. Or maybe it's the default setting of the frustration and anxiety that you start to feel as you approach the intersection of 419 and 220, right? You're approaching it, and you're annoyed because people are backed up for miles and miles in this right-hand turn lane for no reason because there's much more room for them to keep driving. Maybe that's just my default setting. <laughs> uh, I just don't understand. Um, but we all have them. We all have these default settings, these ways in which we respond and we react to different situations. Some of them are unique to who we are as individuals, but many of them are actually universal. They're true of all of us. And one of these universal default settings is the setting of worship. It's the setting of praise. The, the postmodern writer David Foster Wallace uh, gave a very famous commencement address at Kenyon College a number of years ago. Uh, David Foster Wallace was not a Christian. Uh, as far as I can tell, he did not affirm any sort of organized religion. But at this commencement address, this is what he said. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. He went on to say, if you worship money and things then you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid and will, never, will, will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. He goes on, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we will worship. So what will you worship? What will you worship? If you are going to worship something, what will you worship? Or to put in the language of the psalm, what will you praise? You see, praise is simply an, an outworking of worship. It is an outward expression of worship. We praise the things that we love and value and appreciate. What will you praise? You're going to praise something. And so what the psalmist does is he encourages us to praise the Lord. 
I said earlier that this is a Hallel psalm, but what's fascinating in that very first line, praise the Lord, you see when the tetragrammata, which is the Hebrew name of the Lord, Yahweh, when it is attached to that word Hallel, it says hallelujah. Hallelujah. We say that, right? At Christmas, hallelujah, the Savior has been born. At Easter, hallelujah, he has been risen. That is what it means to praise We don't simply praise anything. We don't praise the world. We don't praise the things of man. We praise the Lord. That is what we are to do. Hallelujah. That's what the psalm is calling us to do, to worship God, not power or money or beauty or intellect, not even country or family, but to worship God. Praise the Lord. Now, now we're at church. (laughs) I'm a pastor, and we're reading the Bible, so it's like, well, of course we praise God. Of course that's what you're going to say, pastor. But why would we praise him? I mean, that's really the question. Why would we give our praise? Of all the things that we could give our praise and our worship to, why would we praise God? Well, the psalmist tells us, because of God's works. Five times in this psalm, he speaks of God's works. Verses 2, 3, 4, 6, and 7. You see it in those verses, the works of God, like the works of creation. We see it in verse 2. The psalmist says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. That word for work there, you see there's different Hebrew words that translate the word work. And there in verse 2, it's different than some of the others in the passage. And the word that's being used in verse 2 is the word that is often used in other psalms to refer to God's work in creation. His forming and fashioning of the world. His structuring it. His his speaking it into existence. The psalmist says his works, these works, they are being observed, right? They are being studied by all who delight in them. Or as Romans 1 tells us, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. This is what theologians call general revelation. You see, when we look upon the world, when we look at the sun and the moon and the stars, when we see the the flower that is blooming in the spring sun, or we observe the, the bird gliding on the air, we are to praise our God, the creator of it all. We are to worship him. It is wondrous. G.K. Chesterton, he once said that, that the only words that ever satisfied me as describing nature are terms used in fairy books. <laughs> terms like charm and spell and enchantment. You see, what Chesterton's getting at is that when he looks at the world around him, he doesn't simply see ants or trees or leaves or stars or birds or fish. What he sees is the fingerprints of God. It's as though the world is enchanted, that there is life where we never perceived there to be life before. And that life, it fades away, but yet in the spring, it returns. It's amazing. It's incredible. There's order and beauty and power in the created world. And that's why we praise God. Because it speaks of God's order, his beauty. Or as Calvin put it, The world is a theater to display God's glory. A theater where we observe the glory of God again and again. The sun rises and it sets at his very command. 
the tulip blossoms and comes up because of his power. The world testifies to the glory of God. You see, when we see all that God has done in the world, we can't help but praise him. To sing of his glory, to worship the creator. Now the truth is, is that you don't have to be a Christian to see the beauty and the power and the majesty of creation. Right? In fact, Romans 1 said that all men can perceive it. But the, the problem is, is that sometimes when we see the beauty and the power and the majesty is that we end up worshiping the creation rather than the creator, right? I mean, especially in places like this. I mean, it is beautiful, right? Roanoke is a beautiful place, right? It is beautiful, and people come here because of its beauty. To stand upon a mountaintop and look out and see wonder and glory, but, but it is a misappropriation to then sing glory and praise of the creation itself, right? That would be... It's a misappropriation of praise. I mean, think about it like this. A few weeks ago, I was at Mead's uh, piano recital. So Mead, my, my middle child, she plays the piano, and she's there. And, and there were a few other families there as well from, from our church whose children take lessons, the Bowmans and the Riggs, they were there. And, and every child, right, gets up, and they play their little piece, and there's Mead. And Mead kind of bops when she plays. It's kind of fun. Um, you know, she's playing... Uh, Mozart or Bach, and there she is kind of bopping around like she's playing Elton John or something. It's weird, but um, she's having fun and enjoying herself, and as every person is going along, every kid, right, they're getting up there, they've worked hard on their pieces, and, and the moms and dads are enjoying it, but as, as the day went on, you know, it, it started to get a little bit long <laughs> and started to get a little, uh, little tired, right? People are starting to fade, and then Ada Riggs got up. Ada knew I was going to share this, so I'm, I'm not completely putting her on the spot. But Ada Riggs gets up, and she sits at the piano, and she plays Cavatina by Stanley Myers. And it was magnificent. I mean, it was beautiful. But then when she finished her piece, she started playing another piece. It wasn't printed in the bulletin, so no one knew she was going to do it. She started to play the Beauty and the Beast theme. And it was amazing because all these little girls who were playing the piano, who, who were now starting to fade, as soon as they heard the, the opening lines of this piece, they shot up and they look around and go, it's Beauty and the Beast. You know, and they're hanging on the edge of their seat because Ada is playing it masterfully. I mean, it was beautiful. It, it really was beautiful. Now, I want you to think about that. You have sat there, right? You're that little child who has been sitting on the edge of your seat. You've heard this beautiful music, or you're the proud parent, and afterwards you go up and you talk to Mead, or you talk to one of the Bowman kids, or you talk to Ada, and you start talking about how beautiful the music was. And, and instead of looking at the piano player, you start looking at the piano and going, I mean, isn't it amazing that this box of wood and these pedals and these strings and, and this... Fake ivory, because they don't use real ivory anymore, right? Faux ivory keys can make such wonderful music. Isn't it incredible? And we're touching the piano. Oh, don't touch it too much, right? Because, But we completely ignored the piano player. Y'all would think we were strange human beings. And you would be exactly right. Because you don't praise the instrument. You praise the musician. How much more should we praise our creator? He is the one who made the mountains that we get to stand upon. He is the one who formed the valleys that we look over. He is the one who put the birds in the air and put sea creatures in the ocean that we will never see. And he did it for his own glory. 
We don't praise the creation, we praise the creator. Because it is his powerful and wonderful works of creation. That's why we praise him. I love talking to Christians who are doctors and scientists because they understand things about the human body and the world that I cannot fathom, right? They talk about little intricacies in the eye or blood vessels, how they can contract and and open and all the different things that happen in our in our bodies and and you watch them talking or you or you hear them talk about the the things in the the earth and in the air and and you can see a light kind of appear on their face an enjoyment because they are understanding the creation in a deeper way than we can even fathom and they start to praise God even as they are talking about it It just kind of comes out of them. You can't help but see it. It's amazing. Go talk to one of the Scots afterwards or or Daniel, who's a a science guy, or or anyone else who is in these hard scientists to Aubrey and, and others, and just watch them. You'll see it in their faces, the amazement and the wonder at what God is doing in his world. That's why we praise God, because he has created this world. But that's not the only reason why we praise him, not just for his works of creation, because there's actually something even greater than the work of creation, and that's the work of salvation. We hear it in verses 3 and 4, full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. In verse 9, he says, he sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever, holy and awesome is his name. He sent redemption to his people. He's saving them. In verse 4, we read of the wondrous works. That is a single Hebrew word. It literally means wonders or marvelous things. It's actually the exact same word that is used in Exodus chapter 3. When God told Moses he's going to come and bring wonders upon Egypt. You remember what those wonders were? We call them plagues. But in the Exodus, what they're called oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, they're called wonders and mighty works. Do you remember God brought these plagues, these wonders and mighty works upon Egypt like boils and darkness and blood and death and gnats and flies? And he brought them upon Egypt. Why? To save his people to deliver them, to rescue them out of Egypt, and to lead them away from slavery, to save them from their bondage. These wondrous works, that's what God is doing. And do you remember what he did after that? He led them through the desert, and he brought them to the mountain, and he gave them his commandments, and he brought Moses up to the mountain, and what did he do? He passes before him, and what did he say? The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It sounds like verse 4, doesn't it? The Lord is gracious and merciful. He is gracious and merciful to his people who are in need of salvation. He is gracious and merciful to bring wonders and power and might upon his enemies. God's saving of his people is the pinnacle of grace and mercy. It is the height of his character. The Exodus was the salvific event for Israel in the Old Testament. It was what they continued to remember and look back to again and again and again when they were in 
when they were in despair and they were fearing, where is it that the psalmists oftentimes point them? To the Exodus. Remember what God has done. He has not forgotten his people. Remember how he delivered them. It was the salvific event to reveal God's character. He is merciful and gracious. God's work of salvation. He's shown that to us too. His wondrous works. We don't have to look as far back as the Exodus. In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter is standing before these people in Jerusalem. It's the day of Pentecost and he gives his Pentecost sermon. And he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. This Jesus God raised up, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus' mighty wonders and works. The work that he accomplished on the cross when he was nailed to it and took our sin upon himself. And our sin was nailed to the cross. That mighty work that he did when he was buried, but he rose again, defeating death, hell, and the grave. The mighty work that he did in taking people who, were, who should have been brought under judgment and making them the sons and daughters of the king. That is the mighty work of God. The work of salvation that he accomplishes for his people, for you and for me. Y'all, that's why we praise him. That is why we worship him. We can worship and praise the world of money and men and power, but they cannot save you. They will eat you alive. But Christ can. And because of his grace and mercy, he does. God is merciful and gracious. He works redemption for his people. That's why we praise him, because of his works. Okay, but how do we do that? If we're supposed to praise him because of his works in creation, as works in salvation, of redemption, how do we do this? What is this going to look like? Well, I'm sure that most of us, when we think about praising God, we think about what we're doing right here, right? We, we sing and we we sit under God's word and we pray and we come to his table and that's absolutely right. We're going to get to that in a minute. <laughs> but before we get to there, what I want us to see is that praise, this kind of praise, is far more life-consuming. It is a fully embodied experience. It's not something that is simply relegated to Sunday morning. But what we worship and who we praise is revealed in our actions. And so what we are to do is to praise God with all of our works. We're to praise God with our entire being. That's where the psalmist began in verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will praise God with my whole being. Right? Not just with my lips, not just with the words that I say, but with my entire soul. Praise of God will erupt out of my soul because I'm captivated by the beauty and power of God. It begins in the heart, but it expresses itself in the ways that we live. Look at verse 10. The psalmist says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Now, in order to understand this, we have to understand what the psalmist means by the fear of the Lord and what he means by wisdom. So the fear of the Lord 
in poetic and wisdom literature in the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord isn't talking about the fear that uh, we often uh, denote with, with those who are coming under the condemnation of God. It's not that kind of fear. It's the fear of the Lord that is produced in God's people to, to bring about reverence and devotion and obedience to God. That's why the psalmist would say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So what is wisdom? Well, well wisdom isn't the accumulation of facts and information. Right? It's not just storing up information in our heads, as good as that is, as important that is. It's more than that. You see, wisdom, biblical wisdom, is knowing how to live as God has commanded us. It's the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. Those who practice God's wisdom, the, the wisdom of God is revealed in the way in which we live. As one theologian put it, wisdom is the art of biblical living. You see, the truth is, is that you can be the smartest person in the world and biblically be a fool. And you might have no degrees and be the wisest person in the room. See, biblical wisdom isn't primarily concerned about information and facts. It's concerned with living. It's concerned with living in a way that brings God glory, that brings God praise. It's taking all that we have heard and all the precepts of God and putting them into practice. That's what wisdom is. It's living as God intended us to live. So what this means is that our salvation isn't simply something that we just store up to get to heaven. That our salvation is to produce in us a particular way of living that reflects the kingdom of God. And when we live this way, this wisdom, when it gets fleshed out in our lives, in our souls, in our hearts, the truth is, is that biblical wisdom is going to look to the world like foolishness. Because think, just think about some of the things that Jesus says, right? That his, the economy of God's kingdom, it's a place where, where the last will be first and the first will be last. It's, it's a place where in order to gain your life, you must lose it. Where the poor are rich, where the way to exaltation is the road of humility. Where those, are, those who are given power have power, not for the sake of themselves, but for the sake of those without power. That that is God's kingdom. It's considering others more significant than yourselves. It's being slow to speak and quick to listen. It means caring for the weak and loving the unloving or unloved and receiving the stranger. It goes on and on, right? These, these are the complete antithetical things that we hear from the world, right? This is not what the world promotes as wise. Maybe this is why in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. Now, Paul's not saying God's foolish. <laughs> That'd be blasphemy. It's not what he's saying. But he's saying in the minds of man that God's wisdom looks like foolishness, but in reality, it is far wiser than the wisest of men. What this means is that our lives are not about ourselves. That's biblical wisdom. It means that we have been saved for a purpose. We have been saved to live our lives in glory and honor and praise of our God. We've been saved to live our lives in love for our neighbor. 
to promote the well-being of another, even at the expense of ourselves. That's biblical wisdom. And it goes on and on, right? We could spend hours talking about what this would look like. But what it means is that as we live out the way that God has called us to live, every aspect of our being will be lived in praise of God. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, we will do all to the glory of God. Everything is given over to him. That's how we praise him. With our entire being, with all of our actions, with all of our thoughts, with all of our words. Wisdom is biblical living, and biblical living gives praise to God. And we do this not just as individuals. We don't just do this on our own, but we actually do this together. See, we praise God with our entire being, but we praise God together. It's where the psalmist began in verse 1. He will praise the Lord in the company of the upright, in the congregation. In the congregation, the psalmist is talking clearly about corporate worship. What he's saying is that the praise of God is not only for the benefit of the one doing the praising, but it's for the benefit of the whole. What's fascinating is that as you read through the Psalms, if you start to look for it, I'd encourage you to try this. Start looking for it, but, but you'll hear the psalmist speaking in the first person about himself. But then at some point, very often, very frequently, the psalmist will turn and he'll include the entire congregation. I will praise the Lord in the midst of the congregation. I will remember what he has done, and I will tell them to the others. I will sing of his praise amongst his people. I will go to the temple and rejoice with his people. He's constantly encouraging the corporate inclusion of God's people in praise. He's doing this because praise isn't simply an individual endeavor. It is something that we are made to do together. I mean, that's why we gather physically for worship. I mean, think about it. We, we don't have to do this anymore, right? Like, I, I could just sit at home, and I could, I could have a little camera, right? I could sit in my seat, and I could preach this sermon, right? Y'all wouldn't have to. Y'all could stay in your pajamas. I wouldn't even get to see you, right? I wouldn't even have to see you. Stay in bed, you know, have a cup of coffee. You can bring coffee here, too. But, but you know, you could have really good coffee, cappuccino, <laughs> have a cappuccino, right? You could sit in your beds and you could have breakfast as you're listening, right? And, and you could get up and leave and no one would ever know. And, and when the sermon was over, you could, you could download your favorite song. You wouldn't have to sing songs that maybe you don't like or, or uh, aren't sung at the pace that you want them to be. Or, or you could have more instruments because maybe you like a lot of instruments. You could do it any way you want. Right? You wouldn't even have to listen to me. You could download one of the greatest sermons in the history of the church. And I guarantee you, my name's not attached to it. So you could do that if you wanted. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with listening to sermons during the week. I think it's really good. And there's nothing wrong with listening to good music, praise music during the week. That's really good. And cappuccino while you're listening to music. I mean, that's probably even better, right? But that will never take the place of God's gathered people singing and praising and dining at his table together. Friends, the truth is, is we are physical embodied beings and we are made to worship together. You see, what this means is that I actually need you for my worship. I need you so that my worship is aided. And you need one another. 
I mean, think about it. Think about those mornings when you are so weighed down by sin and sadness, when the burden of, of grief and mourning is setting in, those, those mornings, those Sundays, when, when you awake and you are so physically and emotionally and spiritually exhausted that it took everything that you had to get here. In those times, it would be very easy to keep the curtains drawn, to just roll over, Right? I'll, I'll go when I feel like it. I'll, I'll go when I feel strong. I'll go when, when I feel better. Right? It, it would be easy to do that, but the truth is, is that it's in those moments that you need worship. Because when we gather together and we are standing and we are singing to God, even when our hearts are doubting, even when the very words that we are reading we cannot form on our mouths, we need to hear God's people singing those promises around us. We need to hear that praise erupting in the voices of others when we cannot have it erupt in ours. We need to hear those words when we are burdened by sin, those words of assurance that you, if you are in Christ, you are forgiven. We need to hear those words, come, eat and drink, all who believe. We need to hear that. That is why we gather for worship. It's one of the reasons. Because we need one another. God has created us in such a way that our fullest expression of praise and worship is done together. It's done as we sing and as we pray and as we worship. As we declare the words of truth to each other and remind one another of God's great works. We praise God together. We praise him with our whole being. The default setting of your heart, of your soul, is to worship. You're going to worship something and you're going to give your praise to someone. David Foster Wallace was right, but he's just parroting the greatest theologians who have ever lived. It was Martin Luther who once said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. And so people of God... Let us confide in the God of creation. Let us cling to the God of salvation. Let us hide in the one who calls us to praise him with all of our being and with all of our heart. And let us say together, praise the Lord. I, we, will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. His praise endures forever. Amen. Our God and our Father, we do thank you that you bring us together to sing praise to you, that we lift up our voices, that praise overflows our hearts, that you fill our souls with awe and wonder, and that we cannot help but give you praise. We cannot help but praise you because of your works, the hands of your work in creation, the the work of your hands in redemption. We cannot help but praise you. And so we gather and we sing of your grace. We sing of your glory. We sing of the praise of the one who has saved us, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And God's people said together, Amen.